Welcome back here to the second hour of the Peter Hegg Radio Show. You know there are those uh, those moments in American history, in American political history, that will uh, will forever stand out in your mind. Of course, when you think of presidential debates, the uh, classic line of Reagan to Walter Mondale that he's not going to make age an issue of the campaign, not going to exploit for his own political advantage his opponent's youth and inexperience. It's one of those moments that you just never forget. Our next guest has what I consider one of the greatest zingers at a political convention of all time. And several of you will remember it. The International House of Pancakes, Bill Clinton's foreign policy experience, pretty much confined to having had breakfast at the International House of Pancakes once. It is an, it's an indeed an honor for us to, to welcome to the program today. He's on MSNBC, a regular contributor, author of several books, a political columnist, and just one of the names that you associate with the American political world, Pat Buchanan. Mr. Buchanan, thanks so much for making time for us today. Well, I'm delighted, Peter, and thanks for recalling that, uh, that phrase from that 1992 speech. It was, it was a classic. Let, let me ask you, you have authored a new book, Suicide of a Superpower, and the, the, the word that really stands out at me is the word suicide. You have all of these various texts, all of these books, all of these columns written about the death or, or, or the fading of America being a post-American world. You've chosen the word suicide. Can I ask you to expound on it? What, was the, what is the, uh, the impetus behind that? Well, it's because uh, America's clearly, uh, most Americans believe it now, 70% believe we're in a period of decline in every way you can imagine. We're losing our Christian faith. Uh, You see the decomposition of society. You see the incarceration rate is enormous. We can't defend our borders. We can't balance our budgets. We can't win or end our wars. We can't stop the hemorrhaging of our manufacturers. And the reason I use the word suicide is quite simple. Uh, We're doing it to ourselves. No one is doing this to us. We're doing this to ourselves. And Arnold Toynbee was right when he talked about great civilizations. He said they die not by murder, but by suicide. Mm. In Abraham Lincoln in 1838, I believe, at the Lyceum speech, he said, uh, you know, as a great free nation, we're either going to live, uh, we're either going to live forever or die by suicide. Mm. Your, your assessment that a lot of it has to do with uh, the loss of, of the cradle faith of Christianity, uh, how much of what we're seeing, there, there's, there's folks that want to separate economic issues from, from social issues, from religious issues. How much uh, of, of the breakdown in, in all of these various areas, uh, domestic policy, foreign policy, how much of it is traced back to that, uh, to that faith connection? Well, I think a tremendous amount is. Uh, when I talk about, for example, the the loss of unity as a people. We're not one nation, one people again. We were one nation and one people under God. We had a common faith. The 99% of the country was Protestant. Uh, When we were founded as a nation, around 1960, I believe 95% were Christians. The others were Jewish folks who came from a Christian civilization in Europe. And this held us together and gave us a common moral consensus and moral code. And, of course, Washington said that religion and uh, was con- connected to morality, and they were indispensable to the survival of a republic. So I think a lot of the culture wars we have that divide us, the decomposition of society, uh, the crime rate, the drug rate, the dropout rate, uh, the illegitimacy rate, all of these things are directly related to the decline of Christianity in the United States and the virtual death of Christianity in Europe. I mean, Christianity is what created Western civilization. Mm. I mean, it was when in, out of the decaying and dying Roman Empire. And if the faith goes, I believe, as I've said in that progression, if the faith goes, the culture goes, the civilization goes, and the people begin to die. You know this better than anybody. The moment you start talking like that, uh, immediately the buzzwords of bigot uh, and, and all of the accompanying adjectives and, and descriptors come out. How in our current culture, where there's such a focus on multiculturalism and that every idea is just as good as the next idea, how do you fight back against that? How do you, how do you ever reclaim, or can you ever reclaim, uh, this loss of unity that you're speaking of when it comes to, to an issue like faith? Well, I think the... Um and I'm having a little trouble hearing you right now. It's very low. But uh, I tell you, I think, the, in a way, some of these problems are irreversible if we're talking about politics. I mean, Ronald Reagan was a good man, and I think history will regard him as a great president. But I don't think Ronald Reagan can turn around 
a situation like this because the the loss of the decline of Christianity, the crisis of Catholicism, all of these things date back to the 1960s uh, when we went through a real cultural, moral, and religious revolution, if you will, a revolution in thinking about right and wrong and good and evil and God and man. And a part of the country was converted. It rejected uh, the traditional Christian uh, beliefs and morality and ethics, and it set off on a new course. And that set it apart from the society, and it's grown stronger and stronger to the point where we have this, if you will, religious cultural divide that is behind all these conflicts. But I can't, you can't roll, you can't go home again. You can't roll that revolution back. In a way, it's like the French Revolution, uh, nowhere near as violent, obviously, but it's like the French Revolution in that it changed a people's way of thinking about the world, about life, about everything. What percentage? What, what percentage would you put on the number of Americans that you think grasp what you're saying, that that really understand it? And I and I know that's why you wrote the book to open more people's eyes to it. But where do we stand now as far as folks that can make that kind of a connection and understand those ideas? A uh, very small minority, and uh, and you know I wrote the and, and the book is not. Uh, I mean, it, it is not. It is a pessimistic book. Uh, I don't. I don't deny it. I mean, you go through one of these after another of these crises, and you see that we're not addressing them. We don't even understand them, and you don't know what happened, and and some things can't be turned around. And I don't, but I do think there's an, an intuition on the part of a lot of people. Let me tell you, I was driving along. Uh, I was in Missouri for a speech out in Central Missouri, out in the lakes out there, about three hours from from St. Louis, and we're coming back, and the driver was an African American fellow, and. Uh, and we were talking. He was talking about things that just weren't right. And I said, you know, well, it's the uh, it's the loss of faith. It's the loss of religion. It's, and he said, you're right. You're right. I mean, so I think a lot of folks believe this more than we imagine. And uh, I have not gotten a terribly hostile reception to this book. You know, I've obviously gotten tough questions from liberals and others over a number of issues. But there's been a real receptivity to the message because I think everybody knows something's gone terribly wrong. And uh, and a lot, most folks of my age who grew up through a different time, they know that while there are things wrong back there, in many ways it was better in America than it is now, 50 years on. We may be richer, but it was better then. Yeah. What, uh, what is the solution politically then? I, I know you say you know, politically we can't solve some of these issues. How important then do presidential elections become? How important are, are congressional elections in the direction that the state is going uh, as opposed to corrections that need to be made in the church, corrections that need to be made in the culture? Uh, what kind of emphasis do we place, or is it an across-the-board approach that, uh, that those of us that want to at least slow this process of the suicide uh, that we take? Well, I think that certainly politics is not unimportant. And again, I go back to uh, the significance. Well, if you take a look at the significance of the of the, the, the killing of John F. Kennedy, gave Lyndon Johnson it propelled him to that enormous landslide, and the rejection of Goldwater and the conservatives. And of course, that gave us the Great Society, which I think is partly responsible for the social decomposition of this country and the loss of the fiber of its people. But I think in the in the last analysis. Politics can certainly help us deal with this economic situation and the foreign policy situation and getting the budget under control and getting things uh, that I think tearing us apart, like affirmative action, getting them repealed if, if you had strong leadership willing to do it. But I place less and less confidence in the, in the political system or in our politicians uh, than I used to. And, uh, I mean, I would obviously think the country desperately needs a Republican president, a Republican Senate, and a Republican House. Uh, but am I hopeful that uh, this is going to turn around the situation I describe in that book? <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let, let, me, let me ask you then, we bring up the current political situation. What do you make, and I know that this isn't necessarily addressed in the book, but I, I would be remiss if I, if I had you on the program and I didn't ask you to provide some sort of analysis of, of where the Republican Party stands right now as far as the, as, the, as far as the presidential race goes. Who is going to emerge? Who should emerge? Uh, what's Pat Buchanan's take on that? Well, I'm not, I haven't endorsed anyone, and I think a lot of the candidates have got some fine qualities. And I think uh, it looks to me, if I had to bet now, I would certainly bet on Mitt Romney. And if I were advising him, I would tell him that you better go out to Iowa. 
and and win Iowa if you can and shut this down because the majority of the party really wants someone else as a candidate. They haven't found him or her yet, but they want someone else. And if someone else breaks through in Iowa, you could have real trouble. So, But my guess is that Romney will win the nomination as of now. And I think if he wins the nomination, I think it's almost a toss-up as to who wins the election. I think that uh, uh, Romney is not an inspirational figure for, for the country, the way Reagan was and the way John F. Kennedy was and, and Barack Obama was to an extent, uh, that, that really excites people. But I think the country, the people in the country are really uh, coming to believe that we need desperately need change, that President Obama, whatever his promise, has not lived up to it, that we are in very difficult straits and the president can't get us out of it, and we've got to end this deadlock in Washington. And the only way to do that, uh, or the best way, is not to put Pelosi and Reid back into power, but to uh, remove the president. Yeah. Do you think, uh, you think Romney's a conservative? Uh, Romney talks... Uh, very conservatively now, but I, I have to say the way he ran his campaign against Teddy Kennedy in uh, Massachusetts was certainly uh, not conservative. That was the Massachusetts Republican speaking. Mm. All right. I, I just wanted to take a quick sidebar on that. In the book, let's get back to the book here for a second. In the book, you write about the uh, the founding fathers, the, the death of the white tribe of the founding fathers. Now, I did a quick, uh, in preparation for talking to you, I, you know, I go on and, and I do a quick Google search, and you start finding these articles about the most racist quotes in Pat Buchanan's new book, Suicide of a Superpower, and, and, and several of them focused on that. Could you explain what you mean uh, with the white tribe of the founding fathers and, and and, and basically the context surrounding that and how, it, uh, how it's not a racist statement as, as, as some will attempt to make it? Well, but sure. The, uh, take a look at the cover of Atlantic Magazine. had the exact same title, The End of White America. Uh, read in the book. In the book, you've got uh, you know, Frank Rich, the columnist. They're celebrating the day, 2042, when whites are in the minority. It's going to be a better country, they say, and this is wonderful. And, and I say, okay, I, I agree with you. It's the, uh, it's the end of white America. The whites is a majority in the country, and we're all going to be minorities. But what in heaven's name holds us together when we got no common faith anymore and no common moral consensus, and we do not share uh, the same view of American history, and our politics are poisonous, and we're at each other's throats ideologically? What, what in heaven's name holds us together? Now, I do believe that the ethnic core of a country is one thing that holds a country together. And frankly, this is how the European Union came about, as I write in that long chapter, citing that professor from Catholic University. It was really when, the, when countries consisted of a single ethno-cultural core, an ethno-natural core, that countries come into being that way, and they're more homogenous, they're more united, and they get along better with their neighbors. And I think there's nothing wrong with discussing this when everyone else can discuss it and celebrate it, and I say I'm worried about it. Right, right. Do you think, and, and tell me if you think that this is an, an accurate statement to make or assessment to make, that we celebrate the glory of America and, and our diversity, but, but wasn't the glory, wasn't the, the, the benefit of America that you had differing cultures that came in, but they assimilated into one common culture? And, and we don't have that anymore. We now have multiple cultures, and, and we celebrate how diverse we can possibly be, which in essence is what you're saying. Once we become overly diverse, what unifies us? Is that an accurate way of that, describing that's it? That's a very accurate way of describing it. We all, you know, my, you know, my ancestors, uh, uh, you know, the Scotch-Irish have been here a long time. They were in the South. They were participated in the Civil War on the Southern side. And you got German ancestors who were out there in western Pennsylvania and, southern, and eastern Ohio. And you got the Irish who came in the potato famine. So they're all part of me. They make of me. But I'm an American. I don't speak Gaelic. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I am an American. By, you know, my no American history, American literature, my English, English is my language, all of these things. And this is what the melting pot did. It made us all one. We created a new culture and heavily uh, dominated, quite frankly, by our British, our British ancestors who, uh, who built the country. Uh, we're 99% Protestant. I'm a Catholic, but it was a great land of opportunity for us. And so, uh, and, and, and we're all one. And by 1960, I felt there was a real sense of national unity. When Nixon and uh, Kennedy ran, it was almost they couldn't find anything to disagree on. Mm. We were a very unified country. 
and I see us now as, as enclaves that, that have very little in common with each other, and we're dividing up not only racially and ethnically, but ideologically and politically, and by beliefs about morality. Mm. I mean, uh, on an issue like right to life, are 50 million abortions a good thing? That used to be a crime when I was growing up. Abortion was. It was scandalous and criminal. And now it's a progressive thing. And the same with, uh, I mean, if someone suggested homosexual marriage when I was a kid, uh, uh, you know, there was, there was a rumor that uh, some Hollywood couple, I won't mention the names, uh, two of these two males had, had married. And everybody thought that was a hilarious joke. Mm. And now it's the civil rights cause of the day. Right. So I think the... And the divisions are just enormous, and I, you know, I don't see us ever coming back together again. Let me let me ask you then. You're bringing this up. What about the speed at which the decline is taking place? It seems like, and and I don't I don't have you know I'm I'm 32 years old, so I haven't I haven't seen the uh, the devolution of American culture over a long period of, a, a long time span. But it seems like we we are progressing into these conversations at a at a more rapid rate that we're talking about. How quickly in the last 10 years the perception has changed regarding homosexuality. Sexuality. What what was you know Bill Clinton's stance on it, as opposed to what Barack Obama's stance on it is, from a from a wider perspective, somebody that's that's watched this happen, are we not only uh, worse off than we were say 50 years ago, b- but is it also not happening at a much quicker rate today, the rate of decline? Oh, I think it is. I mean, I'm astonished. I think uh, of young people. I think there's general acceptance of homosexual marriage is a good thing, and. Uh, and those things, I mean, if you'd come out for those positions uh, just a short time ago, they would have been almost fatal. We've got to ask, you know, that, uh, that Clinton simply moved to don't ask, don't tell, and it hurt him very badly. And now it's been brushed away, and I guess the Congress voted to kill it, the Congress of the United States. And, uh, and again, gay marriage has been, uh, I guess, judges, but in New York State, it was done by the legislature and governor. Now, people are going to pay a price, and 31 states have rejected it by referendum or, or uh, yeah, by referendum or vote in one way or another. But there's no doubt it's where the momentum has been in recent years. And uh, I think uh, if you look back on it, uh, I think the, the process began in the 80s, and it seemed to be arrested for a period through the Reagan era and even through the Bush, uh, the Bush era, first Bush era. But it in the last decade, and especially under Barack Obama, I think there's been a real acceleration. Yeah. As I was reading uh, part, parts of your book regarding that very issue, uh, two, two recent stories stick out in my mind and I think are, are beautiful depictions of it. You have a teacher in New Jersey, who, who uh, Governor Christie, who is a, uh, by all accounts a conservative governor, has essentially said uh, she needs to be investigated because she posted on her Facebook page that she has a problem with homosexual marriage. And then you contrast that with Governor Cuomo marching through the streets celebrating uh, uh, homosexual marriage coming to New York. And, and those stories are coming into my mind as I'm reading this text. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I'm glad you said at the beginning that it's it's a depressing book because it was very depressing to me as I was as, as I was putting all this together. I'm depressing a, a good slice of the country. Huh? Well, at, at the same time, I think it can be a motivation, and that's and that's what I want to ask you. I know we're running out of time, but uh, I, I see this book also. It's a stark warning, but it's a motivation for those you know. The scripture talks about not to not to weary in well doing and. Uh, and, and, and we know that we're, we're commanded or told in the Constitution to, to seek to preserve the blessings of, of liberty for future generations. I see this as a wake-up call. Uh, and, and so people are going to say, what's the takeaway? What, what are the major focuses that we need to have? And I know they need to buy the book, and, and I want them to buy the book. But in a nutshell, what do people do to try to reclaim this, to try to slow this? There's, uh, well, uh, I don't think you can turn around a revolution once it occurred. But there's, there, there's enorm, there are enormous parts of this country that are morally and healthy and healthy in every other way. And you've got to preserve and protect those. And you've got to instruct the young people in what is, you know, continue the battle. It's, it never ends. The culture wars never end. Uh, I think it was, what was it, T.S. Eliot said uh, something about there are no lost causes because there are no won causes. Mm. The struggle is eternal. And I do think politically it is imperative that as many people as possible, I know I don't have enormous hopes 
that should the Republicans get in, there's going to be a great uh, a great renewal, or there's going to be another Reagan revolution. Uh, but I do think it's imperative uh, to save the country and to balance these budgets if you can get near there, and to and frankly to lead us out of this morass that you get a Republican Senate, a Republican President, a Republican House. And if they've got the courage to do the right thing, they'll probably be thrown out as well. Do you do you focus on the uh, the areas of the country that you said you know are doing very well or very moral that hold on to this? Is part of the solution with the Republican Congress or Republican uh, Senate and House and, and and White House repealing some of this uh, top down legislation and letting those areas thrive based on their on their moral cultures and, and and maybe shining as an example to others to do things at the state level at the local level is that is that a possibility? I think that is. And, and one thing you can do is you can stop this war. And I've got a column out today, the church-state wars that are coming. And uh, and you can at least stop the, 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 the state from waging war on the faith. And, I mean, the idea that – and you can change the Supreme Court with one more justice, I think. And if you change the Supreme Court, that will go a long way to stopping some of these depredations – and some of these decisions that are appalling that have been coming out of there ever since Earl Warren was Chief Justice. So you can do you can do many things in politics. I don't deride it. I've spent a whole right. life in and out of it. But I do, uh, and 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 then I don't uh, counsel despair in any way. Right. But you know, I do suggest that your 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 uh, your statement. This is a wake up call, folks. We are losing our country. If you care about it. Just reflect on these, what I say, how it's happening, whether it's reversible, what you can do, everything here, and, and take away from it a determination to try to preserve it. Because what is it Russell Kirk said, uh, you know, uh, the, the task of a conservative is, is to conserve a certain people at a particular place at a particular time. Suicide of a superpower. I assume all major bookstores, Amazon.com, people can get their hands on it, and uh, and it's definitely worth the read. I can't thank you enough, uh, Mr. Buchanan, for taking time for us. And and I would, I, I've been, I've been hammered by folks to just ask you the question: Do you feel like you're you're a foreigner when you walk into MSNBC? No, I feel like a a Jesuit missionary among the Iroquois. <laughs> Very good. Thanks so much for making time for us today. I, I appreciate it very much. Okay. Pat Buchanan here on the Peter Heg Radio Show, and uh, thank him for uh, for making time. I just had to know. You go into that place. Jesuit missionary going to the Iroquois. That's about right. Thanks to, thanks to our friends of Attaboy, uh, like those at, uh, at Ben Soft Pretzels. Get into Ben Soft Pretzels today. And uh, you'll find them in the Markland Mall. You'll also find them at a lot of stadiums around the Midwest and now accessible here in your backyard. Try their original and their dipping sauces. You will love them. Ben Soft Pretzels, good friends of Attaboy Productions Incorporated. Okay, more to come on the radio program. Good conversation with Mr. Buchanan. Back to Wind, uh, wind On next. Creative Services ready to assist you with all of your graphic design work, and I know you will be thrilled with the product that they turn out. It is great. You will uh, you will love it. Um, it's a, it's about as good as it gets in the world of graphic design, and for an incredibly good price at the same time. If you don't believe me, check them out. ParkerCreativeServices.com. Ask for a free quote, and then go and shop around. Find other places that you think is of, of equal quality. It's going to be difficult enough to find, but uh, go go find a place that you think is of equal quality and price them. Keith's a youth, youth minister, so he operates uh, uh, understanding the importance of eye-catching graphics to convey a message, whether that's at a church or a business. Be very responsive in, uh, in, in turnaround time. You'll be impressed. ParkerCreativeServices.com. ParkerCreativeServices.com. Good friends of Attaboy. Productions Inc. You know, the tagline here on our radio show, like I mentioned before the break, is common sense makes a comeback. And the reason that I chose that line for our slogan is because I am I am of the belief that we desperately need common sense to make a comeback in this culture. And if you question that, if you question the logic behind that, you question the veracity of that conclusion, I want you to simply consider the plight of a bunch of Christian students down at Vanderbilt University. 
one of whom emailed the show and asked me to look into this more because I'd be in, in disbelief about it. I think the the uh, student reads my column at One News Now and was uh, was saying, you know, this would be a great subject for a future column. Indeed, it is. Now, Robert Shibley, who works for the uh, uh, for the organization Fire, and and uh, Fire stands for the uh, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. If I remember right, we've had a we've had a representative from Fire on. It's been several years ago. Had him on the program, but uh, but anyway, they they do great work, and Robert Shibley is is associated with them. He's written a piece about this. He's written a column about it, addressing what's going on at Vanderbilt and the lack of common sense. And this is this is something that's across the board, and this is something you don't have to be a Christian to understand. Okay, it is something anybody from any walk of life, any faith, any political background. This is something we all should agree with. Here is here's what's going on at Vanderbilt. Okay. Um, Vanderbilt University, this fall, they have told the Christian Legal Society that if they want to be equal to other groups on campus, meaning they get the same rights and privileges of of being a campus group, then they cannot require their own leaders to have any Christian beliefs. Okay? This is the Christian Legal Society. But Vanderbilt has what is uh, what every campus virtually has, and that's a non-discrimination policy for their clubs. Can't discriminate against people on the basis of their race, their religion, their ethnicity, so on and so forth, from your group. And they've just made a blanket application of that non-discrimination policy, saying everybody has to uphold it. Now stop and think about how ignorant that is. This is the same thing that happens on a larger scale in the general population when Christian businesses, like a Christian counseling clinic, when they are forced to hire non-Christians. Otherwise, they'd be violating the state's non-discrimination law. Okay, And I, I will say this again in a little bit as I get more into this story. I am not opposed, just blanket opposition, to non-discrimination laws. I think there's great value in non-discrimination laws. I think many of them are good. But you have to apply basic common sense in the process. And that is not happening at Vanderbilt. Now, I will say this. The Christian Legal Society, of which this student that emailed me was not, or was a, uh, was, an, was an aspiring member, wanted to be part of the group, they're not the only victims. Okay, This isn't just the Christian Legal Society that's being targeted by this political correctness infection. A dozen groups, five of them are religious, have had their uh, have had the recognition of their group constitutions deferred because they require their members or leaders to actually believe in the purpose of the group, and that is deemed unacceptable. You cannot you cannot discriminate. Do you see how ignorant this is? Telling churches when they have uh, uh, church schools for kids, well, you can't expect people to be Christians who work at your uh, your church. What? This is what's coming in the uh, in the non-discrimination laws to protect homosexuals. Like we were talking about on the show yesterday, Christian school has a Christian code of ethics for their faculty members. Started off the program with it, Shorter University down in Georgia, and they're being hammered right now for being uh, for, for for being discriminate discriminators. And the government undoubtedly at some point is going to get involved. I don't know if they will in the shorter situation, but what what's happening there? A church is going to be told, or in this case a university, but later it'll be a church told, uh, you can't expect people who come here, who work here, whatever, uh, to uh, you know, to not be practicing homosexuality or whatever else. You can't discriminate against these folks. This is what's happening in the culture. It's a microcosm. It's happening at Vanderbilt. Uh, Sibley writes this in his piece over at the Daily Caller. In the case of Vanderbilt's uh, Christian Legal Society chapter, the Reverend Gretchen Person, who is the interim director of the Office of Religious Life, she's the one that responded to all of this, the university uh, person that responded, and said, quote, Vanderbilt's policies do not allow any student organization to preclude someone from a leadership position based on religious beliefs. Okay, first of all, the Christian Legal Society has always required the leaders of their group to be Christian. Even more absurdly, Reverend Person objected to the Christian Legal Society's requirement that leaders, quote, lead Bible studies, prayer, and worship at chapter meetings because, quote, this would seem to indicate that officers are expected to hold certain beliefs. 
I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's utter stupidity. This is why we need common sense to make a comeback. Why we desperately need it. I can't believe that the Christian legal society would expect their leaders to lead Bible study, to lead prayer, to lead worship. That seems to indicate they expect their officers to hold certain beliefs, and that's not allowed. I mean, this is just, this is, this is what the political correctness virus of the left is doing to us. And we see it in so many different areas, whether it is uh, the, the uh, execution of the war on terror or whether it's something like this. It is utter stupidity, void of anything remotely resembling common sense. And it's a threat to our culture. I think I don't think it's just me. I think most other people, including the students at the, in, in the uh, Christian Legal Society in Vanderbilt, I think all of us understand the value in a non-discrimination policy. Okay, let's say this was the University Chess Club. I have no problem at all with the school saying, you are not going to keep Catholics out of the University Chess Club. There's no reason that you're going to discriminate against a person because they're Catholic in their private faith. You're not going to do that. I get that. I think everybody gets that. But this is where we need some basic common sense and a willingness to apply it. Not all discrimination is bad. We do understand that, right? Or has is, is that word become such a buzzword that we fail to recognize we discriminate every day as human beings? We discriminate when it comes to what we're going to eat. We discriminate on where uh, we're going to go shop. We discriminate on what we're going to wear. But that doesn't have to do with people. Fine. You discriminate in who you're going to make your friends. You discriminate in who you're going to marry. You, you, you sometimes discriminate on who your child's friends are going to be. It isn't evil to discriminate. It isn't evil or bad to be discriminating in our decision-making. In fact, it's very wise. Now, are there kinds of discrimination that are deplorable? Of course there are. But being a people that I thought, I thought we appreciated common sense, surely we have to be able to distinguish between the two. And there's no effort to do that right now at Vanderbilt University. And the left suggests that there, there should, be, should be no distinction. Just write one set of, of one-size-fits-all rules for everybody. It applies to all forms of discrimination. It is banned. Well, think of where that's going to lead. This is what Shibley wrote in his piece. Nobody should be surprised that religious groups on or off campus prefer to be led by people who share their faith. I mean, let me step away from that. Just like we shouldn't be surprised, you shouldn't be surprised, if you enroll your child at a church school that the teachers are going to believe in the, in the doctrine of that church. Now, maybe the school has a policy that they're not going to teach the finer points of doctrine. I don't know. That's up to the church. But you, you should expect. There was a story that a colleague of mine gave to me. A bunch of Muslim students at a Catholic university were suing the university because they prayed five times a day, and yet they were forced to pray on a campus where Jesus was looking over them on a crucifix. And that was, was a violation, they said, of their human rights. I mean, they should be laughed off the campus. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You are, you are attending a Catholic university. There should be an expectation that people at a Catholic university uphold Catholic doctrine, believe in Catholic principles, and that you're going to be exposed to that if you go there. I am not a practicing Wesleyan. I went to Indiana Wesleyan University. Several of my professors were Wesleyans. I heard a lot of Wesleyan doctrine while I was there. Now, many of the courses that I was taking, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't major, major in ministry. So the, the, uh, the exposing to Wesleyan doctrine, it wasn't overwhelming. But I expected it when I went there. I expected to hear about Wesleyan doctrine, which, by the way, isn't, isn't far off from the doctrine that I hold. But there, are, there are some distinctions. There are some differences. But it's not. And I wasn't offended. I didn't claim it was a violation of my human rights. I knew it when I went there. And I should know that. And I would have no problem with, with Indiana Wesleyan University holding an expectation for their faculty that all of their faculty members are Wesleyan, that attend a Wesleyan church. Now, they don't have that, I don't believe. I don't believe that, that that's their requirement. But if it was, that's not offensive to me. That's not inappropriate to me. It's their university. Just like these, these kids, they've got a Christian legal society. It makes sense that the expectation would be you are a Christian. 
especially if you're going to be in leadership. Anyway, back to Sibley. He says, demanding that a religious student group not ask its leaders to share the beliefs of the group serves nobody. Who benefits when non-believers have the right to lead campus religious groups? Certainly not going to be the students who attend the group. Indeed, the only people potentially benefited by those kind of rules are those whose purpose who wish to destroy minority religious groups. Those are the only ones who are going to benefit. For instance, he writes, imagine that the Christian Legal Society has 10 members, but there's a group of 20 students who don't like Christian Leadership Society's message. They want to get rid of the group because they don't agree with Christianity. Under Vanderbilt's rules, those 20 students who are hostile to the CLS, they could join the group, vote themselves into office, and then hijack the group, disband the group, or, or, or start new uh, doctrine for it, and just stalk those Christian kids that want the legal society wherever they go. If they try to start a new one, do the exact same thing. Or imagine what would happen, he writes, were, uh, were a Muslim group to use Vanderbilt's rules to do this to a Jewish group on campus, or vice versa. A bunch of Jewish students decide they want to disband the Muslim group, and so they join the group, they have more numbers, they elect themselves to positions, and they change the rules. They, they disband the group. Sibley points out it's hard to overstate how ugly that could get, and it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to. That's my point. This all could be avoided by simply applying a little, a little Andy Griffith nonsense, or not common sense, not nonsense, to the nonsense. Let me try that sentence again. Apply a little Andy Griffith common sense to the nonsense, to this situation. You know how, how Barney was always letter of the law, and it's got to apply to everybody, and never made allowances for certain situations and circumstances. Well, that's what's going on here with these liberals. Oh, political correctness, we, no discrimination is acceptable. Really? None? To discriminate in group membership on the basis of those things that, that, that make up and constitute what the group is about, that's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not unconstitutional. I don't feel like my constitutional rights have been violated if I'm barred from being the president of, of the University Muslim Association. I'm not a Muslim. Have we really gotten to the point where we're that backwards? And by the way, if my liberal friends out there want to argue with me about this because they just like to argue with me, let me ask them this. How would you like it if me and my 35 cons closest conservative friends started showing up to your poorly attended local Democrat Party organizational meeting where you guys are electing officers. Yeah, oh, what, like 10 people show up to that to elect the officers of the party? What if I show up with my 35 friends, say that we are now going to be Democrats and we are, we are going, to, uh, uh, we're going to participate in the election of officers here? And we elect ourselves to be officers. And we totally change the direction of the local Democrat Party. I'm guessing that suddenly discrimination doesn't seem quite so evil anymore, does it? You see, this, this is why I start off with this isn't a party thing. It's not a religious thing. It is a common sense thing. Shibley concludes his piece this way. He says, if Mahmoud Ahmadinejad were a Vanderbilt student, the president of Iran, the college would insist that Christians United for Israel at Vanderbilt make him eligible to lead the group. The guy that says he wants to wipe Israel off the map. That's how dumb this policy is. As Shibley recognizes, just like I was saying earlier, he writes, non-discrimination policies are both good to have and legally required on virtually all campuses, public and private. But avoiding invidious discrimination doesn't mean that you have to brainlessly insist that someone's religious or political beliefs should never matter. You can lead a Christian group, Bible study, or worship service, regardless of your race or ethnicity. But you can't do it with any effectiveness if you're not a Christian. And any number of politically correct platitudes will not change that. Common sense. But we need it. Because this politically, cor politically correct nonsense... It's not staying confined to college campuses. We're seeing it appear in legislation. It's trying to prevent the discrimination of churches and religious schools and nonprofit organizations that are religiously affiliated. And, and if I can cite one more Andy Griffith reference, please, Barney Fife to be precise, it's time we nip it. Nip this in the bud before it turns into a monster that we can't control.
thanks to Trevor, who is the uh, the student at Vanderbilt, who emailed this story, and and then Mr. Shibley, who wrote this excellent uh, write up on it uh, to give a little more background to what's going on over the Daily Caller. You can check it out. We'll have it linked tonight at peterheck.com. That's peterheck.com. Thanks to our friends of Attaboy Productions Incorporated, like those at uh, at the Wyman Group. If you're looking to buy or sell a home, it's not an easy market. Uh, it's an Obama economy, in fact. So check out the good folks at. The Wyman Group, 854-1234 if you're needing assistance, 854-1234. Whether that's buying or selling residential or commercial property, Wyman is the one name in this area that stands head and shoulders above the old others. Sold is their favorite word because it's your favorite result. Back in just a second for more of the Peter Egg Radio Show on a Mailbag Friday. Don't you move an inch. All right, back here on the program. All right, listen, we're going we're gonna to have a, a few moments of candor here. I'm going to lay this out, and I'm going to be really serious. This isn't sarcasm. I'm, I'm actually being serious. Because this is something that I feel like is a, is a major issue, and it needs to be addressed. The political correctness of the left, the sexual agenda of the left, it is endangering young people. And as a teacher, it concerns me, and the fact that we are glossing over the health statistics, the fact that we are glossing over what is plainly stated by the CDC in an effort to embrace the sexual anarchy movement of the left, it is endangering children. And I don't find that funny. I don't find that something to gloss over or pay no attention to. It has become very, very hip these days, very hip to, uh, to support the homosexual movement in our school system, amongst young, young people. Watch episodes of Glee, what have you. It has become a big fad. In the name of anti-bullying, we're going to embrace the homosexual movement. Even the President of the United States of America has used his office in its official capacity to encourage homosexuality in our schools. And if you don't believe me, listen to this. Here's the story. Homosexual activists have been increasingly active in their efforts to reach out to young LGBTs through National Awareness Days, such as Spirit Day and the It Gets Better ad campaign, which encourages gay teens to persevere in their homosexuality through the high school years with the promise that things will be better once they are adults engaging in homosexual behavior. GLAD, the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, also promotes itself extensively through Facebook, Twitter, Mobley, and YouTube. In addition, the White House has pushed a pro-gay message through its Department of Education and directly from President Barack Obama, who pressured the Department of Defense to lift the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy and whose Justice Department refuses to legally defend the Defense of Marriage Act. Also, many liberal Democratic members of Congress have participated in a video for the It Gets Better campaign, which which encourages young people to persevere in the gay lifestyle. The White House turned its official Facebook and Twitter photos purple in honor of Spirit Day and posted a message of support on the official White House blog. The White House tweeted, at White House goes purple for Spirit Day, which is a pro-homosexual event. The White House is using its official capacity to advance homosexuality amongst young people. Now, I have a serious question, a serious question that I want to I want to pose to those who support the homosexual lobby's efforts to infiltrate our school system, to involve themselves in our schools. What in the world are you thinking? And those of you that are taking a passive, uh, even a passive position on this, what are you thinking? How can people be so duped, so misled, so confused as to think that encouraging homosexuality and other forms of dangerous sexual experimentation amongst young people, or in some cases, introducing young people to these uh, dangerous forms of sexuality. Why do you think that's wise or beneficial? And and by the way, I'm not saying this, believe it or not, as a radical right-wing nut who's trying to make everybody conform to my way of thinking. That's that's actually not the basis from which I'm coming in this segment. I have plenty of other segments where I'm a radical right-wing nut. I'm saying this as somebody who cares about the health and the well-being of young people. Let me Let me approach it this way. It never ceases to amaze me To watch all of these anti-nicotine, anti-smoking liberals go nuts about the health concerns associated with with smoking. They flip out about secondhand smoke. 
They spend oodles of tax dollars to keep cigarettes out of the hands of kids. They, they, they make all of these laws to put these disgusting pictures on packets of cigarettes to try to scare people away from smoking. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't have a problem with the message that smoking is dangerous. That's not, that's not the point of what I'm saying. I am perplexed. I am amazed. Beyond words, actually. That these same people not only overlook the far more serious health concerns related to homosexuality, but they actually encourage kids to embrace it. If you're going to flip out about nicotine in the hands of young people, how are you going to either not pay attention to, or worse, encourage homosexuality among young people. It is unbelievably dumb, or or it's unbelievably transparent that what they're actually trying to do, what's being fought for, is not the health and the well-being of young people. It's a political agenda. Now, how do I say that with such confidence? Because the data proves me right. This is why I'm posing this question. I want to know what your answer is to it. How do you feel like you are loving young people when you encourage them to embrace this kind of a deadly lifestyle? Let me read to you the report from the CDC. Despite the, uh, the apparently positive messages for homosexual teens, the Federal Centers uh, for Disease Control and Prevention reported in August that, quote, HIV infections increased among young men who have sex with men between 2006 and 2009, driven by alarming increases among young black men who have sex with men. The only subpopulation to experience a sustained increase during the time period. Young men who have sex with men ages 13 to 29, so that includes uh, kids in high school were most severely affected, representing more than one quarter of all new HIV infections nationally. Young men who have sex with men of all races are heavily affected. Not only do men who have sex with men continue to account for most new infections, young gay and bisexual men are the only group in which infections are increasing. Do you hear that? The only group where it's in increasing. And this increase is particularly concerning among young African-American men who have sex with men. This according to the director of the CDC, Thomas Friedman. Frieden. This alarming increase among young, black, gay, and bisexual men requires urgent action, the CDC stated. Now, do you suppose the urgent action that they were thinking of was for the federal government and the White House to put its stamp of approval on encouraging homosexuality amongst young people? Do you think, does that even make sense? How can you claim to care about young people if you are encouraging this? That is a, that is a question that demands an answer. Quit calling me a bigot long enough to answer the question. Quit telling me that I discriminate and I hate homosexuals when I'm the one saying, hey, I don't want these people who are practicing homosexuality to get these diseases. You are the one who are encouraging them to engage in the behavior that leads them down this path. In 2009 alone, 6,000 males, age 15 to 24, contracted HIV, which accounts to nearly 17 contractions a day, according to the CDC data. The CDC further reported that the results indicate young homosexuals are increasingly complacent regarding their risk of contracting the virus. Dr. Kevin Fenton, director of the CDC's National Center for HIV and AIDS, said in a statement, quote, we're very concerned about these increases among young gay men. You know, I'm glad Dr. Fenton's concerned because the liberal radicals, including the president of the United States, who push kids in this direction, they're not. I mean, you did get the statistic, right? Nearly 17 young men, uh, age 15 to 24, contracted HIV every day. Is this what the White House is this what these liberal social engineers mean when they say it gets better? Seventeen a day are contracting AIDS. Is that the promise of what's better? You get AIDS or HIV? I mean, this is outrageous, but we're actually not even done. The CDC has documented that while uh, men who have sex with men make up only 2% of the population, they account for more than 60% of HIV contractions each year in the United States. A tiny percentage, 2% make up 60% of all HIV contractions. Peter LaBarbera, who is the president for Americans for Truth About Homosexuality, a guy who is constantly labeled a hater and a bigot and a homophobe, he said, where is the mobilization for protecting these young people from what is obviously a dangerous behavior? There's absolutely zero discussion of this massive health crisis. 
He's exactly right. Why are we not banging down the White House door saying, why are you encouraging young people to engage in a behavior that is leading to epidemic proportions of sexually transmitted diseases? La Barbera uh, is critical of what he believes is a deliberately misleading national campaign being carried out by homosexual activists, which employs the aid of many members of the media and Hollywood to further its pro-LGBT agenda. Never has there been such a gaping contrast between the propaganda and the reality, he said. Where is the mobilization for protecting these young people? That's just it. If you care about young people, you do not encourage homosexuality. And if you can come to any other conclusion, please explain it to me. Please tell me where I'm wrong. La Barbera has done a lot of great work in exposing the danger associated with the lifestyle of homosexuality, attempting to get the word out about it, warning kids and warning adults about the danger of, of this activity. And you know what's happened as a result of it for his efforts? You know what he's gotten? He's gotten labeled a hater, a discriminator. He's been labeled evil. He's been ostracized, torn apart. But you tell me, who is it that cares about young people? Those that warn about the dangerous and deadly behavior choices or those that encourage kids to embrace them? That's a question that the homosexual activists cannot and will not answer. Because what they care about is a political agenda, not kids. And the White House has thrown their hat in with them. La Barbera said at the end of this piece, none of these people care enough about homosexuals to inform these kids of the incredibly disproportionate health risks associated with homosexuality. And he's right. None of them care enough. La Barbera and others who stand on truth, they are facing the mockery and the derision of fools, but they are the lone voices that are out there. The lone voices with enough love to take the heat and speak truth to sin. And I hope that they know that whether or not it occurs in this life, eventually, for those that don't grow weary in well-doing, to borrow a phrase, it gets better. So keep standing on truth. And keep resisting those like the White House and liberal gay activists who are preaching lies to young people. You must keep standing for truth and resisting it. Come what may. Because there's a lot of young people who are being misled and, and march down dangerous paths and they are counting on you. And there's fewer and fewer and fewer of us every year. And that means the prospect, the hope for these young people to escape a deadly behavior. Statistic-wise, straight here from the CDC, their hope is getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. All right, we've got to get this last break in. We'll come back. i got the poll results from our Liberty Financial Group poll question of the week next. Don't go anywhere. 